Hello, you're listening to the best bits of Breakfasters with Daniel, Nat and Mon for this week, Friday the 13th of October. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. And coming up on the podcast this week, you'll hear us talk about some inventive ways to commute. Who would have thought Zorb Balls would be the best way? And we're joined in studio by author Robin Davidson, who you might know from Tracks, this time talking about her new memoir, Unfinished woman. Dr. Jen took us through a very relatable study on how sleep impacts our emotions and from gifting letters to neighbours to skydiving we talk chasing natural highs. From the RSPCA Chief Vet Bron Oak walks us through the weeds of snake bite season and starring in Death of a Salesman in Melbourne we were joined by Emmy Golden Globe and Tony Award winning it's EGOT adjacent Anthony LaPaglia. Triple R I've spoken a lot of late about becoming a new car a car owner, a driver. Mm. But over the weekend, I rediscovered the e-scooter. Mm. Yeah, mm. I hadn't taken a ride on an e-scooter since you might not have heard this one since I chased a tram down. I missed a tram. I didn't hear this. And story. I chased it all the way to <laughs> North Kent to make a yoga class because I wanted to avoid a $15 cancellation fee. But you chased it on a scooter? Mm-hmm. So on didn't you just catch the scooter to yoga then? Not quite. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Not quite because then I, like, hit the peak, like, kilometres you can be from the city. Oh, and then I then had they... to park the scooter, take a photo, run. So I took the tram one stop. I was absolutely puffing and panting. Um... And it was to make this yoga class to avoid the cancellation fee, which was $15. Anyway, I think the scooter was about... But I forgot how much I liked it. I think it is like my favourite form of transport. Oh, okay. Yeah, there is is something fun about them. Yeah, it's incredible. You've got your... The wind in your hair, you've got a pretty good speed, like efficient. You can also kind of weave through traffic. So you're on the road on an e-scooter and you're in the bike lane? Yes. You're not technically not allowed to go on the footpath? Yes, you're not allowed to go on the footpath. That they've clarified because since I'd last ridden a scooter, it um, had updated it. There's like a pre-recorded announcement that goes it's illegal to drive on the footpath because when I was first like used them was in Adelaide and I remember it was a real confusion. I was like, where should we be riding these? Mm. But 20Ks, that's quite fast. I was yeah, riding them that's around. Fast. That's why you should be in the bike lane. Yeah. Um, and. It. Did, so what happens when you go outside of the little, the city, you know, it's it periphery. It just locks. It just yeah, shuts down. just loses power. <gasps> what, if, what if you're going 20Ks an hour? Bam. No, they, I, there's like so, like they ease you into it. They're like, you're approaching Ooh, like the end of the zone. Right. Kind of um, like when there used to be different zone one and zone two in public transport. Remember that? They're like, you're uh, approaching zone two. Please oh, make right. sure you've got the appropriate ticket. Okay. Anyway, that that was just a bit of a side note. I was like, wow, I think I've made a mistake. I think I should have invested in an e-scooter. Mm. If only I could, like, find a way to combine because it's got the speed that a bike, like, doesn't take so much physical exertion, but it's also got the flexibility to kind of weave in and out of the road and a little bit of safe footpath weaving. Um, so it's got that element over a bike, but then the car has the front seat which um, I think is the best part, with just sitting in the front seat also being a after the drive. No, not oh, being no, no, the passenger. Of course, of course. It's just my it's, most... You always throw me because you call it the front seat, okay. not the, the driver's the seat. The driver's seat. 
Anyway. So you've you spoken about before that you like owning a car now because you like to sit in the seat when you finish driving and read your messages. Not just read. I'm at my most productive. I'm mm. responding to texts. I'm responding to emails. I'm following up admins. I'm paying bills. My sister came over the other day. And I was, I heard her pull up at the front and I came out the front and she was sitting in the driver's seat on her phone after the car had stopped. She goes, oh, sorry, I was just doing a mum because our mum does that Aye. exact thing. She'll come home and an hour and a half later, you're like, I thought I heard a car pull up and she's been sitting in the car doing admin. Let her have it. <laughs> Let her office. have it. Is there any chance that if we'll move beyond scooters and different uh, transportation comes into fashion, you know, those giant hamster, they're called hamster balls. Oh. Like they're big inflatable globe. Or oh, like the Zorb. Oh, and you like run in them, side yeah. them. The Zorb, like the big Zorb balls? Yeah. That you do, like do why not? Given that if you got knocked by something, it's, it's like inbuilt inflation device and mm. cushioning. Oh. And you're just like scrambling down a bike lane in a giant Zorb. Like a rat in a wheel but in a ball. Yeah. Fun. And then at the end you deflate and... But I, how? So how? <laughs> maybe my, I think the space it takes up might be a problem. Well, let's. We could decrease the zorb size. Maybe <laughs> is it possible to de? But I think then you'd lose the protection that you're you're also after. Mm. But yeah, look, I, I'm sure you could kind of crunch it down. I wonder what is the minimum diameter. Well, they have those. Um, one of. There's a helmet you can get that looks like you're not wearing it, and then on impact it inflates. It's really <gasps> like funny. That. There's yes. one of those. It was I don't know if it was just a prototype where you can actually buy it, but I remember seeing it a few years ago, pictures of it where it's like a flat. So I guess it looks like you're just wearing a like a swimming cap. Mm. It doesn't look better than a but helmet. But it prevents head injuries. Yeah, mm. and ah. so then if you on impact, it goes like an airbag. Yeah, wow. So it's like a little mini zorb for the head. I think I prefer the wheel. <laughs> it sounds more fun, but that maybe sounds safer. But I was running around on the e-scooter because I had one of those weekends overcommitted. So I missed trams. I was in the city ducking around, and I'm, I'm feeling a bit deflated, but <laughs> didn't mean that. Um, I'm feeling a bit deflated because after a really good run, I think about it's been about six months, I lost something. I lost an item that is like my Achilles heel that I am frequently forgetting and leaving places. So it's not a top five item like that we lose, like, I don't know, I keys. guess. Keys, wallet, glasses, Fine. purse. Yeah, yeah, and mm. phone. So it's not a crucial one, but it's one I lose every couple of months and I was doing so well. Um, Is it lip balm? No. I was thinking like not essential but annoying to lose. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah, it only costs like four or five bucks to replace the lip balm, but you're like, you can't be replacing it constantly. So what is it? Uh, the phone charger. Oh, that's much more annoying. I know. It's like... Maybe you just need to. Maybe you just need to accept it because I was like had committed to keeping it in one place, plugged in by the side of the bed. I'd had such a proud moment. Like mm. my boyfriend asked, he's like, do you have a USB-C charger? I go, yep. And I knew exactly where it was. It's a double-pronged charger. It was just so easy. Plugged it in. I knew where everything was. Yep. Left drawer, charger here. That's gone now. Where is it? Well, I took it out and I lost it. You took it on the e-scooter. I took, took it to it yoga. I took it on the e-scooter. I was just... Swinging it above your head. I had it tied on the back of my helmet like a rat tail. <laughs> I don't know how I did it. But it, that that's my item that I'm always losing. And it's like, is it gone? I could probably figure out where it is. This is the problem. Yeah. Okay. But then I could replace it. Like, but then how many can you buy? Maybe there's a limit to how many charges. You keep one in the bedroom, one in the kitchen. 
Yeah. One in your bag. That's a lot of charges. As soon as you unplug a charger, it's you sh- need to start saying your goodbyes. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> From it's untethered. Spot. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's on the loose. Someone well, has asked, though, because losing things, not carrying a bag, if you're on an e-scooter, yeah. you, you don't have, like, it's harder to carry stuff. Someone, how would you do a big shop? Oh, well, yeah, you're probably not doing a big shop on an e-scooter, but mm. a backpack? Would do it. Oh, yeah. uh, it's not a problem in your zorb. Not a problem. No, yeah. fill that zorb up. Have your iceberg lettuce around. <laughs> Just don't buy anything too dense. You get knocked out. You have to wear the helmet inside the zorb because a helmet in the, yeah because if you're buying yeah like firm tofu milk butter <laughs> get beat up in there. <laughs> well, you there would be a shelf. There'd be like a zorb tray for your groceries. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So you. I'm picturing, and someone with the with the gestures that people can't see that I'm doing. It's like putting your arms through sleeves of the absorb. But someone also said, "Sounds like you're describing Daniel a, a blow up sumo suit." Yeah, but yeah. you need a sumo suit is great, but you need some propulsion. Yes, mm. the ball. That's why it would be so. So when so when does the emergency zorb come into play? Is this when your e scooter? Um, chucks you off because you're outside of the zone? Probably. Well, I ideally will start there if you like, but I think ultimately, because some of these bike lanes are quite wide Mm. and some they're protected maybe (gasps) along St Kilda Road. Yeah. If there was a Zorb hurtling down there, Mm. like a ball down a chute, like a marble But there's no walls, right? So there is no chute. (gasps) Yeah, but there's no walls for a car either. And we don't just Do we think a car might be easier to control than a giant ball? <laughs> no, and this is revenge, or not, not that it's about revenge, but you can't get car doored mm. in a Zorb. If anything, bounce, you're bad, bounce all you're the way. Yeah, but, slamming the door on them. They could lose a finger. Wow, yeah. God, well, shifting could, the status quo. You could get to your destination faster. Yeah, like pinball. <laughs> Just like yeah, launch, like slingshot over all the traffic. <gasps> oh. oh, I love it. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Best-selling author whose debut tracks, which documented a nine-month solo walk across more than 2,700 kilometres of WA desert with only a dog and four camels for company, became an instant classic that has been published in at least 20 languages, has never been out of print, and was adapted into a film starring Adam Driver. Now, the writer's released her new memoir, Unfinished Woman, described as an investigation into time and memory, and ahead of a special Wheeler's Centre event tonight, the restless questing character joins us now. Robin, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you, Dan. Good to be here. Well, you did it. You managed to write about your mother somehow in a way that satisfies you. Well, it satisfies me 90%, let's put it that way. (laughs) It's been a long haul, this book, um, and written against tremendous resistance. I didn't want to write about her. I didn't want to write about me. I didn't want to write about my past. But it kind of came back to me, or she came back to me, Um. So I was kind of, I would say, not forced into it, but it ended up feeling like something I had to do. Mm. Mm. Could you imagine living your mother's life? Oh, God, no. I mean, hers was a 50s life. Hers was a post-war life. And it was a very difficult time for women, I think, very restrictive. They'd had the freedom of the Second World War where... um, They'd participated in the war effort one way or another. They'd had the jobs that the men had abandoned to go to war. But then when the men came back, they had to buckle down and be wives and mothers. So there was that. Uh, There was also the ideology of the 50s um, or of that 
whole kind of sort of pre pre feminist I'd say <laughs> uh era um and my dad was very much of that type lovely man but very limited in the way he saw the role of women so she <clears throat> was a city girl and when she married him she went out to live in the country on a cattle station no electricity no car no neighbors um a very lonely life mm. and your dad was born in 1900 so yes. that informs well almost everything Yes, I think he was essentially a creature of the 19th century. That was the era that informed him. So the sort of patriarchal values par excellence, um, the British, you know, um, uh, I guess um, belief in the British values, Darwinism, social Darwinism, all the sort of frightful things that have created so many problems we have now. Mm. But as I say, not a bad man, a good man, a very good man. Now, your life has been categorised as or described as courageous and brave, but you, in the book you kind of push back against that. Yes, I do. Well, I think it's... Uh, I see it as... I, I mean, I've, I think I've been very fearful, in fact. But the greater fear is not living life fully. So if you balance up the two fears, um, you go for one and not the other. Mm. Um, so I, I guess it has taken a, a kind of courage to do what I've done, but it, it, it never seemed a choice to me um, because I wanted to build a person, I suppose, build an individual you said that you you were reticent to talk about or write about your mother and write about yourself, but it came back to you. What do you what do you mean when you say that? Well, it was a very strange thing. I mean, truthfully, from the day she died, she suicided when I was eleven, and from that day until my mid forties, I swore I never gave her another thought. It was just like, oh well, yes, okay, that's it. Now I proceed into the future. I make a person. And wasn't a conscious decision you made to think that way. No, I don't think so. I think I was just dissociated probably or or mm. that's how kids survive. That's what they do. They cut off. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, it can be, uh, it, it can save you to do that. But then I approached the age at which she died and I'd been to see a documentary about Glenn Gould, a, a, a pianist that I liked very much, um, and part of my music was very important in my childhood. My mother was a musician and I was supposed to become a musician, but I hadn't taken that path. So I went to see this documentary and I was deeply moved by it and found myself crying and thinking, what the hell's that all about? I mean, you know, eh. So I thought at the time that it was just a sort of um, uh, a grief for a path not taken, I suppose. So I bought this huge, wonderful grand piano and stuck it in my flat and started to play again. <laughs> but what I found was that the music triggered musical memory. So suddenly I'd, these songs would come back to me, songs that we sang in the 50s and early 60s, sing songs around the piano. That was a real thing then. 
Um, and with those memories came other memories. It's like the musical memories shed light on the past. So I started getting this sense of my childhood. And I realised that, in fact, I did have a lot of memories. I just never bothered to call them up. Mm. Well, you invoked the term fog bank and uh, as in terms of recollecting the mm. past and you mm. seem almost uh, suspicious of your own process or... Oh, I'm suspicious of every's, everyone's memories. They, mm. are, they are to such a huge degree uh, imaginative, work, a work of imagination. So it seems to me that memory are like these seeds that encapsulate some real memory, some something that actually happened. Those are there and they're real, they're uncontestable. And you break them open and there's this little scene from the past. But then what the mind then seems to do is to create a narrative or a story to come ha- to somehow make sense of these of these memories. And that process is imaginative. So the relationship between what actually happened and the work of imagination is very close. Mm. You also, it seems, a bit suspicious on romanticising paths not taken. Oh, There's, yes. Mm. Well, well, I said in the book, you know, if I, you know, uh, I didn't choose the musical route, I got a scholarship to the conservatorium, but I turned it down. Most people, I think, in starting to think about that would say, oh, you know, what a tragedy and it could have been so wonderful. They forget to mention that anything could have happened on that other past, including being knocked down by a bus two days later. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the path you've taken is, by definition, the best path. Mm -hmm. You also reflect on a writing career where tracks seems to just fall out of you. Mm. And I wonder, in contrast to this book, how you look back on that time and that confidence or how do you conceive of yourself? Are you the same person? No, I'm not the same person. I look back at that young woman, I think, boy, I wish I had half your chutzpah. Mm. Um, Of course, if I force myself to go back and think about the journey, it can come back to me. But the odd thing was I wrote tracks two years after the event itself in London, in this hideous flat in London. And um, I swear it was this feat of remembering, real memory. I remembered every single campsite in that eight-month journey. But then what I found was that as I wrote the book, it was like the book cannibalised the journey and became the memory of the journey. So it's much harder for me now to remember the real journey. It seems to be somehow taken over by the book. Mm. Mm. And would your... Uh, I don't want to over-egg it, but d- disdain or loathing... or you, There was no way that you wanted to be mired in the mediocrity of where you grew up. Um, <laughs> what kind of inciting event is that for the rest of your life to to explore and get the hell out? Look, I think a lot of people have it, have that desire. It's interesting uh, why some people want to run and some people are content to stay. Um, 
that's quite mysterious. It may even be genetic. We don't know. In my own case, I just knew that to become a full human being, to be um, a complete human, which is an ongoing process, it never ends, I was going to have to uh, challenge myself and discover the world. And there were, the, in, in some sense, the most important thing that happened was that I just came across a book and it was Catch-22 and I'd never read a book in my life. Well, you know, I'd read Georgette Heyer or, you know, crap. I'd read crap. But <laughs> um, I must have been 16 or 17, 17 probably, and I just happened to pick up this book and it was Catch-22 and I couldn't believe that the world could be, that anyone could write about reality in that way. And it made me realise that there was, that there were places and people out there who might welcome me, that I wasn't as strange as I thought I was. Mm. Other people were just as strange and Joseph Heller was mighty strange. Yeah. <laughs> and you're on speed at the time, which helped the process. <laughs> well, it did. I didn't know it was speed, it was diet pills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and can you tell us about the event tonight, the Wheel Centre Spring Fling, in, for which you're in town? Yes, it's a, an interview uh, on stage at the Wheeler, and it is the official launch of the book. So for me, it's um, I, I've never felt this way about a book, but this is quite symbolic this evening. It's the point at which I really can let the damn thing go. And I suppose you're as close to finished as you can be, given the title is Unfinished Woman. No, I know. There's a lot of fin- I don't yeah. mean finished, but in terms of reconciling so much. Look, it's an ongoing process. It's a bit of an illusion to think that a book gives that to you. It's, mm. it's an unending process. And, of course, you know, I can't get my mother back. She's not get a, get backable. Um, but... I think what I have been able to do in thinking about the past and therefore in producing the book is realising that we loved each other and that's good enough. Well, it's so good to have in you in Melbourne. How does your father describe Melbourne? Oh, I don't know where it's a den of iniquity or where... Oh, the South, well, not so much him but Queenslanders, you know, the, the idea that you would go south into these cesspits of wickedness. <laughs> well, I hope the after party is a cesspit of wickedness. <laughs> so do I. Uh, we've been speaking with Robert Davidson, the author of Unfinished Woman. It's the new memoir. You can book online to the Wheeler Centre Spring Fling event, which is tonight at 6pm, with an introduction by Anna Crean and presented by Hilary Harper. Head to wheelercentre.com for more information. Robin Davidson... Congratulations and thanks for being here. Thank you. It's been lovely. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Possibly energetic Dr. Jen's back in the studio for a central weird science session. Morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning. Yeah, I am feeling energetic this morning. 
I, I feel very alert in the mornings. Lucky I don't come in here late in the afternoon or you'd mm. hear a very different Dr. Jen. Okay. <laughs> well, you better be refreshed. You've been living the dream in Venice and uh, at a science conference and it's just very exciting to have you back. Yeah, I feel very fortunate. As, as I was saying just before off air, you know, I feel like it's a huge responsibility that comes these days with international travel. We know that it's not a sustainable or, or really justifiable thing to do anymore. And I thought, you know, I thought long and hard about this, but it was a very, very amazing conference I had the opportunity to attend. I've never seen a conference before that's exactly what I do, which is how to integrate communication training for scientists into research institutions. So I was, you know, I was with my people. Mm-hmm. I got to meet people from all over the world who are doing or trying to do what I do. And it was, yeah, I feel it was absolutely worth it. And it's pretty tough when you get to go to a conference in Venice. <laughs> To be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, I suppose the jet lag aligns with our topic today. Well, that's why I got onto this topic because I'm really lousy at sleeping on planes. So for me, travel results in a lot of sleep deprivation. I try really hard to sleep. You know, I do all the right things, but I just don't fall asleep on planes. And so I was thinking about what a lack of sleep does to us. And, you know, we all know sleep is really important. And there's lots of studies that tell us that if you don't get enough sleep, you put yourself at greater risk for all sorts of things like, you know, different kinds of cancer and heart disease and stroke and we know our memory is affected we're more likely to get injured you know you're more likely just to have simple accidents if you're not well slept Um, decision making problem solving you know we know a lot about that we all have a sense that sleep is important but my perception was kind of anecdotally I feel like when I don't get enough sleep I get more emotional I'm, I'm quicker to feel sad and upset or angry and I was thinking I assume there's research on that as well but I've never looked at it I mean do you feel that way do you feel like when you don't get enough sleep you're emotional I mean talking to three people <laughs> no I had I had a um yes that's relatable just in the last just today I remember those days I remember those days of babies just wanting to have milk all night yeah. <laughs> Do you know, anyway look we can take this off here but yes I can relate <laughs> So, so I thought, well, let's just look into it and find out what, you know, that's my job right on this show is let's pick a topic and see what research has been done on it. And the first thing I found was some of these really extreme studies from the 1960s that these days you would never get through any ethics panel and would never be done. So studies back in the 60s. Um, so volunteers who uh, stayed awake for more than two nights got to the point that they kind of couldn't find words and they couldn't form sentences and they suffered from um, hallucinations like picturing you know, believing that that, um, objects were moving and that sort of stuff. Three days without sleep, people became delusional and paranoid to the point that it's kind of like movie scripts, people thinking that they were secret agents or that aliens were contacting them, that sort of stuff. Um, After five days of no sleep people became, um, you know, resembling kind of full-blown clinical psychosis. Um, And after that, basically, the understanding is you either sleep or you die, pretty much. You know, we just can't cope. One study I read was from the 1940s where um, volunteers from the US military were invited to take part in studies where they wouldn't get to sleep. Um, And it sounded terrible. So there was this um, one particular story of this soldier who was considered to be very meek and mild and respectful and quiet and introverted and everything. Four nights of no sleep he became so violent that they had to physically restrain him and he was completely convinced that he was on a secret mission for the um for the president and he had to be dismissed from the experiment because they thought they were you know traumatizing him so badly i mean you would never do studies like this anymore right yeah. Yeah, absolutely not That's, yeah it sounds borderline uh, like toothpicks on the eye 
lids yeah. or whatever to keep them open. Oh, it just, I mean, it just sounds awful. So, so these days, you know, those sort of studies obviously don't happen. Um, but it turns out we've got lots of evidence for the links between sleep and, and emotion. So what we all kind of feel like anecdotally is absolutely true. So we know that if you get good quality sleep, you're much more likely to feel kind of positive about the world and be able to manage your, your emotions during the day. Um, people who um, suffer any form of sleep deprivation, even for sh- over the short term, are much more prone to anxiety and depression. So we used to think that people st- you know, suffered from mental health conditions and then couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. Now we know that quite often it can be the other way around. People are ending up with the symptoms of depression or anxiety or other mental health disorders because they can't get enough sleep. And this is really clear, like two and threefold increases in mental health disorders if people aren't able to get enough sleep. So, you know, it's a complex story I think um and and the key thing that I found out which is really cool is over the last decade or so we've got an understanding of what what's actually going on so let's go back into a bit of brain science remember we've talked about the amygdala before Mm -hmm. so the amygdala is the part of the brain it does lots of things but part of its job is this um triggering the fight or flight response so the amygdala can send this huge wave of stress hormones into your bloodstream and make you kind of hyper aroused and you know I'm ready to I'm ready to fight or I'm ready to run away way or whatever I have to do. The other part of the brain that we've talked about a few times before is called the prefrontal cortex. If you kind of put your finger between your eyebrows, just behind there is your prefrontal cortex. And it does lots of things as well, obviously. It's super important. But in the context of what we're talking about today, the prefrontal cortex can kind of dampen the response of your amygdala. So if rationally you know, oh, no, I don't have to flee here, I'm actually safe, your prefrontal cortex can prevent your amygdala going into total stress kind of overload. So it plays this kind of dampening role, really important role. Like a sobering wingman. Exactly. <laughs> That's what we need. We Walk need away, our wingman. <laughs> Just smile and wave. <laughs> so this, what these studies have found is that if you have a healthy person and you deprive them of just one night of sleep, what happens is that the prefrontal cortex, the activity of the prefrontal cor- cortex drops hugely. Not only does the action of the prefrontal cortex itself drop, but the kind of nerve activity that links the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, that also becomes a whole lot weaker. So can you see where I'm getting at? If you take away sleep, you lose the ability of the kind of rational prefrontal cortex to take over the amygdala's response and say, no, no, just calm down. It's okay. You don't don't need to take too much action here. This is actually okay. So what this means is that the brain processes that are really designed to keep our emotions in check at a time when keeping our emotions in check is an appropriate response, that's kind of out of order if your sleep is disrupted. If you take sleep away from the system, you lose the ability to kind of manage your emotions. Um, and this has been shown to happen after only one night of lack of sleep or if you've got someone who is chronically, you know, dealing with lack of sleep. So, for example, a mother who's waking up to feed her baby every night and might be getting by on just kind of four or five hours of sleep a night, this link between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex ends up kind of completely offline. And they've done all sorts of really interesting studies to look at this. One that I really liked was... um, Let's picture I show you, Mon, let's picture I show you two photos. One is just of commuters sitting on a train, really neutral photo. Another is of a baby or a child crying. Mm. 
if you've had enough sleep, you can distinguish, your amygdala can distinguish and say, picture of people on a train, I don't have an emotional response to that. Picture of a child crying, oh, I feel really sad. I feel emotional about that. I hope that child's okay. If you take away one night of sleep from that person, it turns out that your brain is now functioning or not functioning in a way that can distinguish between those two photos and you feel just as emotional. Your amygdala responds just as emotionally to the photo of the, of the people sitting on a train as to the baby crying. You, your threshold for recognising what is emotional and what is not emotional can be disrupted after just one night of lack of sleep. So, so we could one... do that on you right now, Mark. I'm feeling <laughs> emotional <laughs> looking at you. Are you okay? <laughs> I'm fine. Thanks for asking. Um, so that's one night of no sleep or of interrupted yeah. sleep? No, one night of – well, one night of severely interrupted wow. sleep, yeah. So, so it's really easy to understand that we need the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex to talk to each other. We need the prefrontal cortex to calm the amygdala down when we don't need to be as emotional as we might, you know, immediately feel. And if that, that process isn't working properly, then all of a sudden even, you know, the soppy love song on the radio mm-hmm. makes us teary just yeah. because we haven't had enough sleep for our brain to work the way there it needs to. There you go. So love song dedication is just <laughs> listened to by exhausted people. <laughs> if it's playing in the middle of the night and you can't sleep of course people feel emotion so so I just love the fact that where there's a clear reason why this is going on and it means that you know I get that sleep can be really hard for a lot of people but anything we can do to get more and better sleep can help us manage the emotions like you know what's going on in the world right now the world's a really hard place most people I know are feeling very emotional just recognize that if you can give yourself the gift of a little bit of extra sleep this week it might help manage you know help us manage someone has asked it might be beyond the realms of the study or what you know but how do aging adults compensate because as you age you need less hours sleep per night yeah, I, look, I'm not an expert. I'm happy to do some research on that and come back and talk about it another time. I think it's really individual. Mm. Uh, you know, I think there's a general saying you need less sleep as you age, but I think for some people that's actually not true. I think it so depends on, you know, how physically you active you are, how much, you know, mental and emotional work you're doing. Yeah, in terms of compensating, I think it just comes down to what does your body need mm. and can you get enough sleep for your needs? And we all kind of know the feeling of not getting enough sleep, right? That yeah. sort of haziness. We know how we feel when we haven't slept enough. And in a- in addition to self-care, I think maybe it extends to uh, extending compassion to those who are going through an exhausting period. And... Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, recognising that if people for whatever reason are not able to get enough sleep or good sleep, they're not going to be able to manage themselves or their emotions or their interactions with you as well as they might at another time. So, yeah, hear, hear, Daniel, compassion. Mm. Right. And, and Mine, you got a free pass for being a stone-cold bitch for this one. <laughs> I'll be better tomorrow. <laughs> uh, Dr. Jen, so great to have you back. Thank you. Triple R. We've talked a bit about befriending neighbours on the show and I went over to my sister's place yesterday to visit her and she has some new neighbours, which she's been getting to know. Mm. But more specifically, she um, was telling me how she'd been gardening earlier in the day and she'd been giving like excess lettuce and whatever else. That I think they've got some broccolis. I'm not sure what else is going mm. on in their garden oh, to their neighbour. Great. And earlier that day, she's like, oh, and she was telling me she's like, there's just no better feeling than just it's just nothing more wholesome than clipping the lettuce from the garden and then passing it over to the fence. And she's like, I was so keen. She'd done it maybe previously, like the week before, and she'd done it that day. And she's like, 
yeah, I was a bit keen, like the neighbour was painting the house <laughs> and she's like reflecting back. Um, it was probably not the most convenient time to give her the lettuce because she was painting. I think she had gloves on, hmm. but my sister Jess was like, here, I've got more lettuce. Like, here, I'll give it to you again. And so she had to, like, stop painting. It's emergency lettuce. Yeah, <laughs> emergency lettuce. Pass it over. It was kind of a bit more of an inconvenience. But mm. my sister was just absolutely chuffed with herself. And then later she was telling me how she's been doing – which a lot of people have been doing for a long time, but she's dabbling with the cold showers. And I'm like, <laughs> sounds like you're addicted. You're just chasing a natural high. Oh. Yeah, she was getting such an endorphin. I thought the neighbour was involved with the showers somehow. Yes, no, 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 very separate. <laughs> but I don't know, just the way she was describing the interaction with the neighbours, it's like she's loving giving the lettuce and the produce. That's nice, but it's... It was a real emphasis on how good she felt mm. from the act of, of giving it to them and, yeah, sharing that. So it wasn't a selfless good deed. No. In fact, passing letters over to someone with paint on their hands. Exactly. Incredible. nothing but an inconvenience. It was she an, should be ashamed. She should be ashamed of herself. But I was like, I think you're just chasing endorphin hits here. Mm. She goes a little bit. She goes, it felt so good the first time that she wanted to do it again. And I'm just like... I'll this just, is the lettuce or the shower? The lettuce. Oh, right. The yeah. lettuce. The shower, great, yeah. But, um, but yeah, it was the, the giving of the lettuce. I just love this idea that it's like that we can get addicted to something wholesome, like chasing, <laughs> chasing a natural high, mm-hmm. like paying it forward. Like, you know, things could really escalate. You mm-hmm. know, she could... She'll run out of lettuce. She'll start giving... Ex- then who? what does she do then? She's taking her secateurs to Safeway. She's clipping. Oh, she's still other neighbours' lettuce. Yeah. Palm it off as her own. She might. She's chasing that high, that yeah. endorphin hit. I like the idea of a wholesome natural high though. Yeah, but it's a slippery slope I'm witnessing. Hmm. Like people talk about like what's the ultimate natural high is skydiving. People love to push skydiving on you. Like yeah. I feel like everyone's got a friend who skydived. Yeah. It's like you've got to do it. <laughs> You've got to skydive, <laughs> biggest natural high ever. Like, and although, the, yeah, I know someone who went skydiving. He's like, "How was it?" Like, "Oh, it's pretty. <laughs> it was pretty good." I was like, "Wow, I." <laughs> That's so refreshing. <laughs> yeah, and they, they said the same thing for um, no, that when they went to the Great Barrier Reef, they, they didn't scuba, they went snorkeling. It's like, "How was it?" Oh, it was pretty good. I'm like, "Geez." <laughs> Mm. Okay, that just seems like that's maybe them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just realizing it as it was, the words were coming out of my mouth. Maybe they struggled to be impressed. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. used to stick my beauty. head out of the window of the car <laughs> like a dog. Yeah, but I was inspired by dogs. It no. was just instinct. <laughs> I thought of it without them. <laughs> and the breeze, or it's a, not a breeze by that point, mm, but the, the gale, the force of wind, mm. which I would imagine you get from skydiving. <laughs> was yeah, it was like. Remember, there was a sh- shop called maybe What's New, and they'd sell orgasmatrons. Yes. Uh, what's an orgasmatron? They're like um, pr- like a multi pronged thing. It's almost like a like a whisk that's not attached to the bottom. Yeah. And you you um put it on your head. It's like a little head tickler. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And it's disconcertingly erotic. Oh, okay. Mm. Uh, and that's what I felt like sticking my head out the window. Wow. Wow. It was just my natural high. I think I. I, I 
I just couldn't resist. It was like, get me up to 100K. It's like, break the speed limit. Get get me on the highway. Mm. I want bugs in my mouth, damn it. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure it's exactly the same as skydiving. You just saved a couple of hundred bucks. Yeah, exactly. Just blare, it's a beautiful day by YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Because I feel like that's always everyone's video. Like, I'll show you the vid. It's a beautiful day. (laughs) They got the rights to that song. And they're just rocketing to earth. Their cheeks blowing back. Yeah. What about you, Mon? Natural highs. Yeah, do you? Have you ever paid it forward? Have you ever done the cold I think showers? You do, you do get, I mean, the cold showers, I had a cold shower yesterday. And when I say cold shower, I lied. I made that up. I didn't have a cold shower. I yeah. have a little burst at the end. Yeah. And I feel great. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the, pay, the paying it forward thing does give you, it's a smug high. Isn't it? You can't underestimate the power of a smug high. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was etiquette um, in Leon, where I lived yep. for a very short time, to because you'd have like a train ticket that would be valid for two hours. And mm-hmm. So if you exited the train station before that time was up, it was always etiquette. You just leave it on the little um, turnstile. Okay. So you could get to the train station and be like, oh, there's a ticket here, I'll use it. Love that. And I thought that was a really nice thing. That's because so, I like that because it's anonymous and there's yeah. no pressure. And it was just what everyone did. Yeah, that's so lovely. If I, if someone like, you know, I know people would like go at cafes and be like, I'd like to pay for their, you know, muffin and coffee. Mm. Someone paid for mine. Like I'd feel embarrassed. You'd be like, what's, what's your agenda? Yeah. You're like, did I look that sad? And so (laughs) I remember when I came back to Melbourne, I was at the train, I was getting off the train. There's an older woman at the train station and I had my, had a, this was back in the days of Met cards or whatever. And so there was still, it was still valid. Like it was a daily or something and I was Mm -hmm. finished. And I went up and I said, and she was fussing at the ticket machine. I said, "Oh, do you want do you want my ticket? Um, it's still valid for this day. I'm not going to use it." And she went. She just kind of gave me this weird <gasps> look, and she was like, "Oh, okay," no. and took it. And then I was like, what? Oh, <laughs> "You have no idea how generous I just was. That cost me six fifty. <gasps> but in my head, I was like, "Oh, I just was trying to bring back the goodwill." Yep. And then she took it and wasn't grateful enough, even though she didn't ask for it. And then I was in turn annoyed at her, and it was just all yeah. bad. Has philosophy reconciled the fallacy of altruism? Uh, mm. Because naturally, if you were genuinely altruistic, it wouldn't have mattered how it was received. Mm. And maybe on a different day, it wouldn't. Have. Yeah, but I'm uh, still thinking about it. Of course, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Uh, a little voodoo doll. <laughs> and, and whatever keeps – that's the thing also with the getting in lettuce. Mm. I would feel uh, – I would rather the lettuce in my life was anonymous. Yeah. Because it, if it went rotten, mm. suddenly it's it's not just the lettuce that's going rotten. You've got yeah. guilt. Yeah, it's your friendship. Yeah, and then yeah, someone like my sister would be like, did you enjoy the lettuce? <laughs> yeah. Did you have the lettuce? Yeah. Like, Show me a the... picture of you eating the lettuce. Yeah, should I come over and dress? <laughs> Share it. But yeah, I made a dressing. <laughs> yeah, she had the energy when she was talking about it of a neighbour that would what, like spy on her neighbour and – yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if she was watching them eat the lettuce through the window. <laughs> it's also the same when people buy presents and you have to – maybe you, they'll get you a jumper and so when you know that you're going to be in their presence, you'll wear the jumper yeah. to validate their yeah. selflessness. Uh, mm. I've been that's... called out doing that before. Or no, I didn't wear it to them, but I remember someone gave me something to wear to a dress-up party. I wasn't going to wear it. I took a photo with it <laughs> on and then um, – when Change. I saw them next, I said, thanks so much. Like, look, I wore it. And they're like, you didn't wear it, did you? <laughs> oh. 
I go, nah, I didn't. <laughs> I, I know. I, I don't know. I think it was like you they, overcompensated. With I the overcompensated. Story. Like I didn't need the photo. Like here, look at the evidence of me wearing it. Like that's not a normal social interaction. They're like, I smell a rat. <laughs> Triple. Creatures, we're delighted to welcome back to Breakfasts, Chief Veterinarian at RSPCA Victoria, Dr. Bron Oak. Morning, Bron. Good morning. Now, the weather, there's so much going on. We've heard about thunderstorm asthma, but the, the change in seasons has other maybe possibly unforeseen effects. Yeah, you certainly wouldn't know it from today's weather, but <laughs> I think if you were out and about yesterday, you'd see how much sunshine was out. And what that means is that snakes are starting to come out of hibernation. Okay. This time of year, unfortunately, it is when the snakes are most venomous. So we have to be super, super careful. They've been hibernating for a while. They're a little bit cranky. They don't like the cold weather that's happening. So if they're disturbed, they are a little bit more likely to bite. Does that mean, when you say most venomous, Mm. does the venom change or you just mean they're more likely to attack? It's more potent at this time of year. Is it really? Because they've been hibernating? Because they've been hibernating. It's been marinating. It's like fermenting. A wine. It's a barrel. Fine wine. (laughs) I never knew that that changed. There you go. It does. Later on in the season, you're less likely to get as much of the toxic effects of the venom. Um, But earlier on in the season is when we meet and be most careful. I've actually already seen one. I was on a walk along Mary Creek about two weeks ago or something over the warm um, weekends that we had. One slithered across the path. And we've already had a cat come in. Oh. Yeah. So it's bitten it's, by a snake. Yeah, bitten by a snake. And the standard presentation for a cat is usually about four days after they've been bitten. They just presented this floppy cat that's just been lying there with dilated pupils. They're very, very smart. They don't often get bitten, but they can get bitten. Yes, because you, you see, I've seen some videos of cats r- reacting with extraordinary reflexes. There's an amazing one out there and it's in slow-mo and it just shows you how quickly there's, I think, two or three cats just staring at this snake and it's just the microseconds of missing it. Yes, mm. uh, but other animals, I suppose, aren't as quick. Our dog friends, especially our larger friendly breeds, such as our Labradors and our Golden Retrievers, see this is an exclusive opportunity to have a play date. Um, <laughs> we find that um, we often find in families where you might have a Jack Russell or a Golden Retriever, um, both dogs will be barking at the snake, they'll sort of corner it. The Golden Retriever will think this is a great playful thing, but the Jack Russell goes in for the kill. And Jack Russells being ratter dogs are actually quite efficient at killing them. And I've found anecdotally that if you have family with a, a small breed sort of hunting dog um, and and a larger, more playful dog is the larger dog that gets bitten. Right. right. Has the venom, yeah. Uh, and uh, snakes, are they acting because they feel threatened? Is that the only reason? Yeah, they're not actually aggressive, despite, you know, sort of popular belief of snakes. I think we all have this great fear of snakes. Um, but they just don't like being cornered. So if you are doing mowing, you really want to be wearing some boots, maybe some gloves. If you're doing some gardening, pulling stuff up, because... Because the snakes are coming in and out of hibernation, they're sort of merging around. They might be hiding under some old wood. If you're moving a log pile around, sometimes people do mow over them and that can be that will cause them to be quite upset, as you can understand. Mad as a cut snake. And not, <laughs> not great for the snake too. We've got to remember these are protected species. Mm. So killing them is um, bad on two fronts. 70% of human snake bites are because you've tried to kill the snake, mm. often with a shovel. Um, and the fact is they are a protected species and we can relocate them to an area where they are 
going to cause less strife on humanity. But we are encroaching on their areas. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you attempt it, just don't. Don't, don't. The best thing to do is you see a snake is freeze, see what the snake's behaviour is. If you can backtrack, that's great. And if it's in your backyard, you want to call your local snake catcher and get that snake relocated. Um, if you've got pets, you really want to be calling them back. And if you even suspect that your pet has been bitten by a snake, going to your vet clinic straight away is actually key. Uh, the the strangeness of snake venomation is that often an animal will get bitten, especially a dog. If they've gotten bitten, they might vomit, might feel a bit woozy for four hours, and then all of a sudden they're miraculously recovered. But during the, the next 24 hours is when the venom starts to attack to the neuroreceptors. And once you've got the venom attached to the neuroreceptors, it's a really hard slog getting them out and they start to get really sick. They start to get wobbly. They start to not be able to walk. They start to hemorrhage internally and their muscles start to break down. It's a very, very painful condition. Um, what we want to do is get anti-venom into them before that tox, that venom, has actually bound to those receptors because that's what the anti-venom does. It binds to receptors and stops them binding to the, rece- the receptors of, um, of the humans. And do you have venoms. on your shelf heaps of different anti-venoms? No, our two most common ones are the brown snake and the tiger snake. We don't particularly want people to identify them. We don't want what I did have one year at Christmas time. I'll never forget this. We don't want you to put the snake in an esky and bring it to us. Goodness gracious. (laughs) The live snake. (gasps) I just have to wrap that one up and say, do not open live snake. Oh, my God. Well, all we need is for the animal to come in because we have tests which can actually identify the different types of snakes. And the two most common, the eastern and the, and the tiger snake, uh, we actually have the same. We have a multivenom for both of them. Oh, so okay. um, we don't necessarily need to identify which one it is. The copperhead's a little bit different. The red belly black snake is a little bit different as well, but they're not as lethal. In, uh, so they're around. different in what way? Because a, a listener's in... on Phillip Island and they're mm. wondering if they're super venomous. Yeah, look, they are venomous um, and they're nasty things, but they're not quite as lethal as your tiger and your brain. Okay. Uh, And do snakes, do you notice that they bite wherever they can or? It's, it's usually, it's usually going to be on the lower parts of the body. Um, and it's usually because you've come up and you startled them. If you see like that that crazy cat video that's out there, and I encourage anyone to Google it because it is absolutely amazing, <laughs> um, they will bite on the face. So face is a number co- common spot for dogs um, oh. because they're putting their nose out right in their business. Mm. It's like straight onto the nose. Um, so we do see that a bit. And usually you won't be able to see the snake fangs going in. They're small. They're very, very small. They don't have to penetrate a, a big way. But you can get dry bites as well, and that is the good news. Sometimes an animal will be bitten by a snake and it won't actually have any venom in it. Just a warning. warning yeah, a bit of a warning bite, yeah. So if it, you, Oh, go on. Oh, I was just going to say with the anti-venom, is it the same for animals and humans? I believe so. The ones that we get, they're filtered through horse serum. So horse serum actually creates the, anti, the antibodies to sort of bind to, yeah. to the toxin. Um, they are similar. Okay. It's, they're, they're made differently though. So there's sure. different standards of, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I was going to so if you see one, no, I said before this segment here, I've never seen a snake in real life and so I'm terrified of them. You're missing out. They're beautiful creatures. Oh, they Very are misunderstood. Hor- <laughs> horrific. Um, <laughs> so say I was Nat and I was walking on the yeah. creek and I saw a snake. What if I have to keep going in that direction? Because everyone says, I'll walk backwards. Well, what, what do I do? I would question why you have to keep going in that direction. Uh-huh. What is pressing you to keep going in that direction? Uh-huh. Uh, I was on a lovely walk and <laughs> I just let it cross. So you can yeah. stop. You can stop. Freezing is probably the best thing you can do. Um, and usually they'll just... 
okay, because snakes don't hear. They sense vibration. Oh, so okay. that's what they're really sensing. They're sensing the vibration of the ground. So if you've stopped, it hasn't seen you. You haven't encroached on its area. It's probably just going to go off to its wherever it needs to go. Okay, so it's rare that if you saw it ahead of you, it would turn and it, slither up it, yeah. to you. Follow you. Yeah. That's, that's more likely to happen if you keep moving towards it or you've got an animal with you. So, I mean, if you're going Mary Creek, if you're going, um, if you're walking in bushland, um, Yarra Junction, Yarra Bend, all mm. that sort of area, even, even you know, out rural country, obviously, um, even Elstonwick, I've seen a tiger snake up that way. I've seen mm. a tiger snake bite from there. Um, you want to keep your animal on a leash. Mm-hmm. because that way you can control them, pull them back, and as much as possible stop them from barking. So treats are always good to have on you uh-huh. <laughs> um, because the barking also will send a vibration through the mm-hmm. earth. So the snakes are coming out. Do we know anything about their numbers? Have they remained? Yeah, um, there was a census a while ago on the number of snake bites. It's, it's about 10 years old now. Okay. Um, so I don't think we really have an accurate data of what's going on this season Compared but to last if, So if you think your pet's recovered, don't be so sure. Yeah, if you think your pet's recovered, it probably hasn't. In fact, that's almost a guarantee that they have been bitten. If they didn't show any signs at all in those mm-hmm. first four hours, maybe it was a dry bite, but I really wouldn't be waiting because antivenom is thousands of dollars. Then you're looking at hospitalisation, so you, your urinary catheter, you're looking at pain relief, you're looking at blood tests to see what the clotting time is. Sometimes we give plasma. Sometimes these guys end up on mechanical ventilation. Wow. Wow. Life support, um, very expensive. So if you've seen a snake in your backyard in the same vicinity as your pet, just bring them in in case. Bring your pet in, call a snake catcher. Apparently oh. chickens are a bit of an alert, according to a listener. They let uh, a listener about a blue tongue yesterday uh-huh. in Garen Parklands. <laughs> is, is that likely or not? I haven't heard of chickens, but alpacas very protective. A lot of farmers will have a pair of alpacas, a pair of hembras, the dissexed boys. Um, they will stomp foxes and wow. they will stomp snakes from getting around the lambs. They're, they're actually a, a really... Wow. A, you wouldn't think of these, these no. little little spitting animals, but they're very protective of their flock. Great. Wow. Well, Dr Bronoak, I hope you got a cold beer out of that snake esky. Uh, <laughs> I did not. <laughs> from the RSPCA. Dr Bron, thanks very much. No worries. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Anthony LaPaglia is a film actor whose Australian-made credits alone include Balibo, Looking for Ella Brandy, Holding the Man, Lantana and 2021's Nitram, for which he received an actor award. He's a star of television with leading roles including as Jack Malone in long-running CBS police drama Without a Trace, for which he received a Golden Globe, not to mention his turn in Frasier, for which he received an Emmy Award for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Comedy Series, and his performance in SBS drama Sunshine, set in Inner Melbourne, which in 27 won the Actor Award for Best Miniseries. Now, the actor, writer and producer is back in town at Her Majesty's, starring in Neil Armfield's production of Death of a Salesman, and to tell us about it, the well-liked former seller of shoes joins us now. Anthony, welcome to Breakfasters. Hello, good morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Now, I was privileged enough to catch a performance uh, recently of Death of a Salesman mm. and uh, there was live being theatre, live theatre being what it is there was a break in uh, transmission and you know it was all very exciting and it stopped and then you came out and Oh you were at that show? Yeah <laughs> Oh yeah, 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 yeah something went on, I still don't know really what happened, oh, it was like scenes from the Titanic backstage, <laughs> people running around screaming, what's Save the families. Um, I don't know what went wrong, but we had to go down and it just... Oh, that's right. We had an understudy go on and he wasn't quite ready, so they had to mic him up and his mic went out. Oh, okay. And they, they couldn't fix it. 
and it just kept going. And I said, look, I think I should go. And they were like, no, don't go out because they, <laughs> they know me. So um, they thought I was going to do something horrible. And, and then after a while, I just went, no, you know what? They've been there sitting there almost four minutes. It's such a long time. People were getting up and starting to move. Once they get up and start to move around, it's really hard to get them back. So I just came out and told an Arthur Miller story. Well, that's right. Now, do you, ha- do you have a tight five of Arthur Miller stories? Like, <laughs> yeah. do you have a, a grab bag? Because now it's... I have a couple, yeah. Yeah. Now, it's worth, obviously, observing that you uh, won a Tony Award and other awards for performing in another Arthur Miller play in New York. Mm. And I, I gather at the time you knew you were living in history. Kind of, yes. It was a bit surreal because as a young actor, his stuff comes up often in the classes that I was in and people would pick scenes from various plays, all my sons, and uh, View from the Bridge and blah, 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 and do them in acting school and all that stuff. So when um, I went to do this play and uh, I wanted to do the play, my agent at the time was a great old-timer named Sam Cohen, and this is in New York. I asked him about it, and he said, well, I represent Arthur too. Uh, let me ask him. So he came back to me and said, well, Arthur thinks you're too young, but if you put up a reading, he'll come and consider it. So I, like, madly called all my friends in New York that I knew that were actors and set up a reading. Because at the time, I think it was like... Um, 37 or 38, and that character is supposed to be 50. But I was, I'm all, I was born old. <laughs> <laughs> so I put through this together and did this um, reading. And um, after the reading, he came out and he came, I met him, and uh, he just kind of looked at me and he said, um, Yep, do it. <laughs> he was wow. very few words. And he's a big man. He was like six foot four or five, very tall, imposing man. At that time, he must have been in his late 70s, almost 80. And the other thing that was really interesting was that all the women, I, didn't, I don't care how old they were, from... Because, you know, you see these pictures of him married to Marilyn, and you look at it and you go, well, that's an odd pairing. <laughs> I don't really get that. I think everybody thinks that. I don't think I'm the only one. And then, uh, it's like people look at my marriage now. <laughs> so um, he came into the room, and I'm telling you, every woman in there from 18 to 50 were just, he had this aura. He, just the way he walked into a room, it's like, some people have that. Yeah. They walk into a room, it's like, bang, he just owned the room. Which is pretty rare for a writer, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Mm. He had this incredible, and it happened over and over again, so it wasn't a one-time fluke. Because mm. then, once he said yes... He came to every rehearsal and it was amazing to be in a rehearsal and you you would get in the middle of a scene and something's not working and you stop and you go and you look up and you go, "Um, when you wrote this, (laughs) what did you mean when uh, this part happened, you know? And he would be like really helpful and forthcoming. Did he love the showbiz of it? Of being no, okay. No, no. He really. I, I hate saying he was a complicated man. Everybody's complicated <laughs> in their own way. We had an affinity because after a while we talk and stuff, and we both have a this. It's not a love-hate relationship with what we do. Is that we love what we do, we hate the other side of it. You know, 
not this show, mm. but some publicity. <laughs> you know, like a lot of publicity is this three-minute grab stuff and... It's it's almost insulting in its superficiality. Thank you very much. That's so well put. That's why you're here and I'm not. Okay, so my agent said something really interesting about him because I never saw him get ruffled, ever. And I saw some stuff that could ruffle people. And it's something that I now aspire to. He said to me, my agent said to me, no, he's um, he's risen above the battle. Nothing gets to him. Wow. Nothing. And I would love to learn to rise above the battle. Mm. Were there things that got to you in Australia? You left early in your career to because... I didn't have a career. Before I guess before your career really took off. Mm. And I wonder when you... And you were the first Australian to win a Tony for mm. your performance. Thank you. And was there any part of you that held resentment towards Australia for not seeing no. your talent? Or you no. were just happy to be out of there? No, because I didn't leave Australia for show business or talent or any of those reasons. I wanted to leave Australia from the time I was about eight years old. I, w- I was... Why is that? I, I grew up in Adelaide. <laughs> Everybody wants to leave Adelaide at eight years old. <laughs> no offence to anybody from Adelaide, but they love it. Look, listen, people that... You, you fall into two camps with Adelaide, I think. You either... You grow up there and from a young age you go, I have to get out. Or you go, this is the best... I have people that I grew up with that go... Why did you leave? I mean, it's the greatest place in Australia. It's so quiet and beautiful. And it's like, that's exactly the reason I wanted to leave. Too quiet, too beautiful. Gotta go. Yeah. I wanted something messy and exciting. And, you know, New York was all those things in the 80s. I guess it's 40 years, correct me if I'm wrong, since maybe you were first inspired by the that's right. theatre. Mm-hmm. I did get inspired by the theatre here. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, Way of the World, mm. which is a restoration comedy. And does Hugo Weaving know his role in your origin story? Uh, we've worked together a few times, and I uh, I can't remember if I told him or not. I might have. Just, I don't know whether you want to acknowledge he was wearing white tights. <laughs> um, but Ruth Cracknell was just stunning in it. So do you get the feeling now that you're at Her Majesty's that there are people out there you're having that effect on? You are, you are. I know you don't want to acknowledge it, but you're probably changing act, their I lives. I really haven't even thought that thought. I don't think, I don't think like that. Mm. I'm always surprised when, A, I win anything, B, I get acknowledged for anything, or because I'm not usually in that headspace. Like doing this, this play has been the best thing I cannot believe that I I didn't do theatre for nearly 12 years. Mm. I stopped doing it 12 years ago. It's the single best decision I've made in over a decade. And I just love... There's something about being in a theatre. I don't want to sound like a tosser. <laughs> but there's something about being in a theatre that it's it's got a, it's got a, a, a little micro-community in there. And it's a series... It suits me. I don't know. Must, past life, it must have been like a some kind of burrowing animal because it's got a series of like narrow corridors and small rooms backstage and there's you can smell the history on the walls of that theater Mm. i like old theaters in particular Mm. and you know every great production ever has gone through there and probably every every great actor has gone through there and it just kind of hangs on the walls it's it's inspirational yeah yeah and for an audience it's got a momentum and an energy that you can't get anywhere else It, it because it's a big theatre. It doesn't feel like it. Mm. It's so well designed. You feel like you're in a very compact kind of place and the audience is right there with you. 
it's really a, it's a unique theater. If they ever pull it down, whoever does it has to be hung. <laughs> has it re- reignited your passion for theater in general? Will this be? Will you start I'm doing. doing I'm going to start doing it again. One hundred percent. I forgot how much I liked it. That's where I started, and um, I st- my first real working years, well, first three or four of them were just theater. I didn't do anything else. And then, uh, you know, you get older and in your 30s, you want like, oh, like a fast car and some money and mm-hmm. some drugs and stuff. So maybe I should do a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Does it change the process of how you approach a character, whether it is theatre or a film or t- TV? Some people it's different mm. approach. For me, there's no different. There's really no difference in the approach. Mm. There's a difference in... There's no break, so it's linear. Mm. You start at the beginning, finish the end of the play. And there's no one yelling out, cut, do that again. So you have an uninterrupted performance. You, so you actually start to be able to really walk in the shoes of that character. And once you start doing it week after week, there's a kind of um, energy in the performance that you just never get on film. Everything about film is designed to sabotage the performance. Starting at 6 a.m. in the morning is inhuman. No one <laughs> needs to start at that time. Um, it's not necessary. Secondly, you shoot out of sequence. So you'll shoot the end at the beginning. And you'll be shooting scenes. We haven't had time to work out where, you char- where the arc of your character's going. So you have to do all this kind of, do a lot more work in movies, figuring out when you chart your character where they are emotionally in terms of the story so that when you see the movie it doesn't look like a mess or you're just doing the same thing all the way through like your your character should have some kind of emotional journey but this is movies are like a big jigsaw puzzle where you get the emotional jigsaw puzzle and they mess it up all right now you put it back together and we're going to stop you every two takes we're going to interfere in your performance every two takes it's just the antithesis to good acting mm. But but it is a skill in itself, which I learned the hard way. Willie Loman, who you inhabit, is one of the most studied characters mm-hmm. and it's one of the most studied plays and obviously you've turned it over in your mind and thought about it and you're in the middle of a run. Do we need to just come to terms with the fact that we're all going to be redundant or is that a, is oh, that a bad I don't conclusion? I exactly where you're going with this. Do you mean the whole AI question? No, not even. Really? Just, once you've outserved your purpose and you're not used oh, to anyone. Oh, you're just in life. I don't know. I'm not, I'm, listen, my, my, sir, my, my purpose will be served when I drop dead. That's mm-hmm. it. Keep going. I'm not going to stop. Is there anything relatable about Willie Lowen to you? Oh, yeah. He's, there's so much of my father in that man. What parts? The anger. The salesman. Mm-hmm. He was a salesman. The, the size of the character. The um, bellicose nature. <laughs> of him um, also at the core confused as to what is important um, and didn't really understand why people didn't understand there's a lot to work with mm. my father wasn't unique in his idiosyncrasies he's a typical immigrant father of that generation you know and what's interesting is that even even young I've had someone come to me and say I've seen it three times and I've, I understand it better every time. I see something else. I didn't understand why you were doing that or what was going on there. It still has a voice. It still has a voice that works because it's a cautionary tale. 
make sure the thing that you're chasing is really what you're chasing and that you don't box yourself in. It's funny how the play's so famous for holding up, but it's, I don't believe it's ever broached in the play that your wife get a job. And it's interesting that the yeah. dual income family, like obviously Willie Lyman came in from a time where you could support a family on one income. Exactly. And that's an interesting point, actually. In my old sexist brain, I hadn't thought of it. <laughs> but because um, even, even when I was young coming up, it still was okay if women didn't work. I mean, I was always okay. I, don't, I mean, I don't care if men don't work. I mean, it's whatever you want to do, as long as you're happy doing it, mm. great. But I, I am not, I'm, I'm not a big proponent of working just for the sake of working, even though, though sometimes you have to. You know, if you've got a wife and a couple of kids and you've got to support them, I get that. But early on when you make decisions, I don't think people think hard enough about, and you don't when you're 20, where you're going to end up when you're 30 because you're going to think completely differently at 30 mm. than you did at 20. And sometimes choices you make at 20, they set you on this track that seems impossible to get off. And that's what I think people get to the point you're talking about where you feel expendable. What about uh, the... And acting you should is, is an occupation where you can easily feel expendable if you want to. It's like a fashion show. I mean, you know, one week you're hot and then you're not, whatever. Well, how could you, how could you, and, and would you encourage people coming up? No. To, you know, right. <laughs> Become an actor? Yeah. No, why? And I don't say that to keep them out no. either because we wouldn't be going for the same parts. So <laughs> I might have said that at 20. Um, but I say no because if you look at the landscape, look here, for example, what is, what is the most heavily produced kind of show here? Oh, reality TV? Uh, Who needs to learn how to hack for that? No one. Well, certainly no one's made the effort, I can tell you that. Mm. And this is where we've gone. We've gone in this weird cycle where we want to watch other people living their lives and fighting with each other about a shrimp salad that didn't turn out. <laughs> um, that's, it's almost, it's, it's, it's Orwellian what, where we're going. And it's not like movies are kind of like, oh, that they're so good and they're providing an uh, alternative. People have kind of lost interest. Now it's all like, you know, Captain America or the big, the studios, they just want to invest all their money in a cartoon, basically. I get that they're popular and stuff. I couldn't care less about them. Mm. I don't think I even really want to be in one. Right. What if these? No, I, I just don't look good in lycra. I think that's the main problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you look fantastic. I would not look good in lycra. <laughs> what, anyway, about, what about being work, working class? And can you pursue an artistic life and scrap and hustle? Is it getting harder? And it's, it's if you come from wealth, it's just I don't know a whole lot easier. It, listen, the scrapping the scrapping part. That isn't any different. There was even when I started, you had this crap and hustle. There weren't as many people floating around because of reality television, mm. thinking, "Oh, I could do that. I could dip my toe into that." And it's like, it's too, you don't, you, you, no toe dipping. You got to throw your whole foot, and then your whole leg, and then your whole body in there. And if you care about money, first of all, if you come from money it's unlikely you're going to be very good because the thing I think that separates good actors from bad actors is adversity. And the more adversity you've had in your life, there's more things to draw on. But if you've had like, oh, daddy, where's the tennis court kind of life? <laughs> I mean, those are the parts you could probably play. But yeah. 
And then I then I think that person is attracted to it for the wrong reason. They they like the fame or infamy or the attention of it. That stuff I never when I started that wasn't even a thing. When I started in the eighties, it really wasn't a thing about being famous. And now it's like that's the goal. It's like, wow, this explains where the acting's gone. Mm. All your energy's gone into like wanting to be famous. In which case, a reality show is perfect for you. Yeah. What happens to people after they get off the reality show? Five years later, ten years later, mm. I guarantee you, it'd be an ugly story, because you, you can get a taste of that stuff, and it can become really addictive. Fame or attention can be very addictive and seductive sometimes, and when you're not getting it anymore, because as they like to say in Australia, you've had your turn. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so when that happens, what do you do? I, I see what they do. Uh, you know, oh, so and so arrested for uh, drunk and abusive behaviour mm. at such and such pub. Uh, where else are going to go? Some people listen. There are a couple of smart people that manage to parlay it into something else, but they're the exception rather than the norm. The, the bulk of reality show people. I think end up in a pretty kind of frustrated place. What What's going to keep you excited now and refreshed? Are you like, give me a comedy? Give me a... Material. I yeah. don't care what it is. If it's good, it's good. Yeah. I'm going to do a movie here in, um, with um, Alex Preuss, who I, I've never met before. I met him. I love him. I love his movies. And we met for like an hour and we got on like a house on fire and he was like, this is the way I like to do it. He goes, well, there's two parts, which one do you like? I went, that one. (laughs) And so it's a really unusual project. It's really, so I'm gonna come back in February next year. Nice. Do it. And being a lover of culture and and you're Uh, a lover of music, do you, where's your discovery of that in Melbourne, which is a, a music town? I think Melbourne is the best city in Australia. I love this place. My wife's from here, which is how I really came to discover it more and more. It's literally the only place in Australia I feel completely at home. And it's something to do with it. It has seasons. Even though people complain about them, I like them. Mm. Okay, it's like I always draw the unfair comparison between, say, Sydney and Melbourne and L.A. and New York. L.A. is just all, you know, surface, whatever. There are smart people there, but not that many. (laughs) And And then New York is the more... Uh, grounded city because you have to walk everywhere and this is not that there's no culture in LA it just takes so long to drive there nobody goes to see it Mm. that's the problem you're stuck in traffic all the time in LA and that's how I feel I feel like Sydney is the equivalent to LA it's a lot of flash and dash and people you know with great tans and flashing a lot of cash and, you know it's a, it's a really style of substance is that why you were attracted to new york as well so whatever country i'm in take me to where the action is take me where i can go out not have to wait in line for some bounce to let me in where I, I run the risk of running into like someone who's a tradie and having a conversation with them rather than stuck in my own microcosm of bullshit actors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't speak very highly of you as well. <laughs> Listen, I'm, a, you know, I'm one of the bullshit actors, but I, honestly, my wife's not in show business. And when I go home, we never talk about it, ever. I don't ever. She'll say, did you have a good show? I go, yeah, it was pretty good. Mm. She goes, yeah, yeah, well, listen, 
she reads prolifically. She told me about some book that she's reading. But actors often are talking about the machinations of their career. So-and-so got that, I should have gotten it, and casting meeting, and they were boring? terrible. Huh? Is it boring? <laughs> it's boring me telling it. I just put half your audience to sleep. It's boring me telling it. Yeah, like, the, yeah, okay, there's tough parts about the business, but just get on with it. Good advice. You are on stage tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you anticipating anything? Do you do you hope to get in a groove? Is there? Yeah. Yeah. I hope not to. Not to what kind of language do you use, use on this show? All Whatever you like. I hope not to fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I hope most. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, it's people would find that astonishing that Anthony Lapalia reckons. I'm that so it nervous can... before I go on uh. all the time. That's how I know it's the right thing to do. When I got offered it, I was instantly afraid of it and excited by it. It says a lot about me. I went, yeah, this, I have to do this because I'm afraid of it. And it, there's a bit of fear factor involved. And I remember that like, it didn't matter how many plays I did. There's that moment before you go on where it's like, I think, jumping out of a plane. To, to parachute out and you hope the parachute opens. And I just on Willie Loman. Yeah, and, sure, and, and sure. that, you've spoken about how to tackle it and is there some cognitive decline? He's dead. Yeah. I always play it like this. He's dead. Or not dead, he's about to die. I know this because I went through it with my own father when my father passed away. And I was with him, sitting on the bed with him when he died. There's this moment where, and it's such a cliche, your life flashes before your eyes, but I think all this stuff... There's like this last minute rush of stuff that goes through your head. It's what it looked like. And you play over moments in your life that were good and bad and um, well, things you may have regrets about. But it happens in a microsecond just before you pass. And I decided to build a character based on that. And we've got two weeks left. Now it's starting to get crackly. <laughs> this is now where I would like it to run for another month. <laughs> Maybe get the reviewers back. I mean, they loved it the first time around. I would but... love them to come back because mm. it's so much better now. Mm. Yeah, right. It's so much better now on every front, you know. So it's become a really great team effort. Mm. Anthony stars as Willie Lyman in Death of a Salesman. It's, of course, by Arthur Miller and it's staged by g- gorgeously. Uh, by Neil Armfield. Isn't this that beautiful? Oh, wow. Yeah. And you just all, you're, so, you have all our attention, all of you. It's a stunning kind of representation because everybody is observing. He's created a whole community. Mm. Everybody's observing this train wreck. <laughs> oh, <laughs> truly. Yeah. Uh, it's a gorgeous night or afternoon mm. at the theatre. Oh. Do it. Anthony Lapalia, so great to have you in the studio. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Woo! <sighs> That's right, Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.